Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, there's a statement of religious tradition that the eyes are composed of two parts, the light and the dark, and but you only see out of the dark. And I think uh, this past week, at a most difficult dark time, uh, the horrific fire in the Bronx, we also saw light, love, loyalty uh, from first responders. The her- heroism of FDNY, extraordinary. Uh, people who never look... Uh, for thank you, but it's important to say thank you. We're privileged today to have uh, one who leads that great department, the commissioner, the 33rd commissioner of FDNY, Dan Nigro. Good morning, commissioner. Good morning to you both. Uh, Good morning, commissioner. Good to have you on the program. Yeah, and, and let me say your presentation at the press conference was so... Uh, so good in, in that people felt, you know, uh, we know we know what we're doing. You know, uh, I went to the engine house of uh, 48 with some of the chaplains. And I said to one of the uh, firefighters, did you think going in that there was a chance you wouldn't come out and see your family again? He said, I did. But I also realized if I didn't go in and try to save lives, there are people there who wouldn't see their families again. What is it in the DNA of a firefighter? that inspires that person to be ready to to risk life, to rescue life. And, of course, we're talking about the fire that took place in the Bronx, mm. where some 17 lives, right. uh, I believe, were lost. Right. Uh, Commissioner? Knowing what they were up against, and you're talking about that first new engine company uh, from Webster Avenue, right. uh, fighting this horrendous fire back from the hallways into a two-story apartment, um, under these conditions, I think every member of that unit was burned that day, and and they had a job to do. And as the firefighter said, we all know that if if we don't go in there, uh, there'll be you know there were 17 lives lost. If it wasn't for the heroism of the firefighters and the skills of our EMTs and paramedics, that number would have been doubled. Hmm. There were 32 hmm. people brought out of that building in in cardiac and respiratory arrest, and the 17 that perished. The others are all likely to, to miraculously to live. So uh, I can't say enough about what our people do and, and how dedicated they are to this job. Yeah. But, but and Commissioner, it's, it's, it's not, the, not just the fire. Um, it's the smoke inhalation that can, that can take your life, uh, not just the fire itself. And, and that was a big issue, wasn't it? Well, that's generally, in fires, more people die of smoke inhalation than burns. And, and in this case, every one of these folks died from smoke inhalation. The mm. smoke traveled 19 stories up through the hallways, through the stairwells, and uh, and killed these people. Smoke inhalation, it's, uh, it is the cause of most fire deaths. Yeah, there was a report that the oxygen was depleted. Uh, so you had firefighters... Uh, you know, in a in a real state of emergency, in terms of their own lives, and yet they continue yeah, they continue to rescue lives. That's correct. You know, our our air tanks will give a firefighter about twenty to twenty five minutes worth of uh, of air. So you can imagine, as they're searching this building and finding uh, people unconscious and making their way up the stairs to the upper floors, that amount of air is is used up pretty quickly. Um, but they stayed. You know, they kept on. And when you saw the members outside afterwards, how they looked, the terrible beating some of them took in bringing these folks down, um, it's a tribute to how hard they work and how dedicated they are to their neighborhoods that they work in. They're part of that neighborhood, and uh, uh, they're grieving with these families all week. It's been a, a very rough week for our members uh, Commissioner, let's talk about the, the, the training that goes into our uh, firefighters, because, I mean, they have to actually study fire, how it affects uh, material things, how, how, it, how it flows, how it develops. Uh, is, is that part of the training, understanding how fire and smoke works in a building? It certainly is, and as they go up the ranks, it's more so. So uh, as you become a lieutenant or a captain or a chief, uh, you have to know more and more uh, about the behavior of fire. And our members are uh, quite astute uh, at that science. Some of them have degrees in fire science and and such. But um, 
what they do have more than anything else is is tremendous bravery and tenacity. And uh, and I say that, again, not only about the firefighters who brought the people out, but when I got there, watching our EMS personnel work so feverishly on these folks and knowing that they working as a team, firefighters, EMTs, paramedics have been saving lives for years now. And uh, uh, this is why New York City has had fire deaths under 100 for the past 15 years. Where does that selfless spirit come from? I mean, that that doesn't uh, happen in a vacuum. It's got to come from some kind of background, some kind of teaching at home. Uh, I mean, I've been chaplain with you for oh, about 22 years, and I've never met people more dedicated to the saving of life at any cost. Um what is it? You, you've done it. Uh, what inspires you? Well, I think people uh, that uh, have this desire to be part of something bigger than themselves are attracted to the fire department. They're attracted to a career in, uh, in EMS to save lives. Uh, the training that they get instills this in them day in and day out. And the camaraderie in the firehouses and EMS stations to uh, to do the right thing for the person next to them, to be an example to the people in the city that when you call 911 and need the fire department, we will be there in minutes. We were at this Bronx fire in three minutes, and we will do everything we possibly can to save you. Wow. Wow. The families, I, I don't know if it's the families or who's ahead of it, but they say over a million dollars has already been raised in some fund to uh, assist these families. Uh, do you know about that, Commissioner? Yeah, there are various uh, funds have been formed, both by the, uh, there's one, the Gambian Youth Youth League, I believe it is, because every one of these victims uh, has their roots in the Gambia in Africa. Mm. And uh, the state and other groups are, are there. There is an, an overwhelming feel of, of folks wanting to come to the aid of these people, hardworking people, who lost their families? It's uh, it's very very sad to see. Sunday there will be, um, I think there's been two funerals, and there'll be a funeral for the rest of the folks on Sunday. I know there'll there'll be a, a very very large number of people there a tribute to these lives lost. You know, I was looking, is, yeah, looking at the yeah, response, just, uh, yeah, Reverend, and it, it, here you have people from the Gambia, and you have a outpouring uh, of support from people from all different backgrounds, and nobody's asking where are they from before I make the commitment. They're there to give, to help. I saw so many different back, uh, so many different groups on the ground. Uh, you have that picture I think we'll never forget, firefighter carrying a child uh, under his arm as going down the ladder, you know, and he doesn't say, well, this child is from this place, that place. This is a child. This is a human being, and I want to save this person. Uh, that's a statement uh, of the the way we need to look at one another, because you know uh, we're often uh, ready to label people uh, by uh, the external appearance, uh, not by the, the inner being of that human being. And this was this is a message for all of us that we, we better look deeper and not be so superficial. We certainly should. I mean, I'm, you know, I grew up in Queens, and uh, uh, there's no more diverse place probably in the world uh, than queens of languages and cultures and, and uh, how people look and dress and speak. And if we don't have that in our souls and, and in our belief, um, we better just get out of town yeah. because that's what New York is and that's what makes New York such a wonderful place to live as far as I'm concerned. Rabbi, I, I had to let you go first, but that's exactly what I was going to talk about, the fact that... Uh, you know, there is no distinction. We're looking at a human life, a human being, a human person, uh, a status that's conferred by God, the life and dignity of the human person. And that's what it takes to uh, put your life on the line for people that you may be totally different from you. And that's so important amongst our firefighters, of course, our police officers, but definitely amongst our firefighters. Would you? So thank you for bringing that up, Rabbi. Uh, I, Commissioner, I, you know, as I think back when I was a kid, it was a big deal when uh, a police officer came for, uh, you know, whatever day it was that we would have them come in and talk about 
the police department. And the firefighters, when they would come, it seemed to be even more uh, of a response from the kids. And kids looked at firefighters uh, with respect and kids were talking about my dad is a firefighter or I want to be a firefighter. I have to, to go to school in Queens when I was growing up as, as a kid. And, and then all of a sudden that, that, that died out. Our culture changes, social factors came into play. Uh, and then 9-11 happened. And all of a sudden we rediscovered some of the heroes of, of our society. And that has pretty much continued up to this day. Do you agree? Oh, I think so. I, th- I think, you know, when we do school programs and I've done them myself for my children or my grandchildren and come in and show the equipment and um, some of our members come in, I think the young people are in awe of, of firefighters and police officers for that matter. Although the old joke goes that what a firefighters and police officers have in common, they all want to be firefighters. But anyway, (laughs) after, uh, you know, 50 some odd years in in the fire department, I am a little prejudiced, but uh, I do think our members do all of the things that make them legitimate heroes and, and they should be looked at as such. And we expect them to act that way because uh, people depend on us and people depend on the heroism and skills of our firefighters, EMTs, and paramedics. Yeah. So looking at this fire, there has been much discussion about space heaters, about closing the door. Uh, I think the mayor said, look, very hard to, you know, to blame people who are victims because the panic sets in. There is that inclination, that instinct to, to open the door and to get out. Uh, talk about the space heater. Talk about the door. Yeah, we can start with the, the heater. People use space heaters to supplement the heat or in an emergency when there is no heat. In this case, um, the building had heat. How much it had, I'm not, uh, I I don't know. But this family chose to use space heaters in the bedrooms, and they left them on quite a long period of time. This particular space heater in a child's bedroom malfunctioned, caused a fire. The children screamed to their father, there's a fire. Um, we, you know, for safety, we tell people use only UL listed space heaters, plug them directly into the wall. Uh, don't keep them within three feet of anything that could catch fire, such as the, your beds or couches or anything else. And don't leave them on all night. Don't leave them on while you're sleeping. So that's the issue with the space heater. As you said about the door, the reason, though, there's a law that requires self-closing doors is because we know in a panic, as much as we can preach, close the door, close the door, people are in a panic to escape a fire. And sometimes uh, um, they will forget that. So the door is supposed to be built to close by itself. What happened in this case, why it didn't close, it is so deformed from the fire that we're not exactly sure yet but we do know that it did not close as it should and, and the that door that you speak i'm sorry cutting you off i just the, the door that you speak the, of is not the door the to the apartment right yes the door to the apartment all doors in, in any building with three or more uh apartments have to be self-closing ah. so this door was required to be self-closing and it didn't and i tell people Anybody listening immediately, check your door. If it doesn't close by itself, let the building management know. Tell them to fix it. And the building management should check every door in their building because they're required to ensure that these doors close by themselves. Uh, At this fire also, at least one of the doors on the upper floors from the stairwell, which is also required to be self-closing, was wide open. And it caused the 15th floor to fill with smoke and be untenable and resulted in the loss of life up there. Mm. Wow. I I think about these people who really come for the American dream and to experience what our country, what our nation, incredible nation has to offer. Uh, And they create communities within themselves and support each other. So I can understand how this is so devastating to some of the dreams that I'm sure many of them had coming to to this to this nation, yeah. Rabbi, you you understand? Yeah, that. Reverend, I uh, I met with the Imam Imam Kaba, 
of the Islamic Cultural Center there in the Bronx and the role of the the house of worship in the community uh, is so, so very, very important. Uh, you know, what we call a house of worship, a house of gathering, a house of study and all that. It's a place for people to come and be with one another. And uh, I met some of the families there who had lost loved ones, one who had lost a child and a wife. And uh, he mentioned how, how important it is for him uh, to retain that uh, identification with, with the uh, with the mosque, and you think here are people who have lost so much, and they still love their tradition so much. Uh, it was unbelievable, uh, but don't minim- never minimize. We certainly don't don't minimize the role uh, of faith uh, during these very very uh, trying uh, times. Commissioner? Yeah, we certainly yeah. we certainly pray that their faith can help get them through this terrible experience as people lost, you know, children and wives and husbands and uh, brothers and sisters and how devastating that is. And I've experienced that with, you know, so many times with families um, and how important faith is for them to, to be able to go on, you know, with, for some of them without, without their faith, they, uh, they themselves would be lost. Yeah, yeah. Commissioner, when you think about, you know, the emotional impact, mental and emotional impact of situations like this, our firefighters are facing these situations on an ongoing basis. What component is built into the training and ongoing uh, development of firefighters in the area of emotional and mental health? Well, we've certainly stressed over the years, and I'll go back to Happy Land, the fire in the Bronx that that killed 87 people 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, At that point, the department was just starting peer counseling where members could at least get an initial um, start on counseling with with their brothers and sisters within the department. And everyone plays a role. As the rabbi said, our, our chaplains went up to the firehouse, and the role they play uh, at all of these events in counseling our members and offering help, we have a very robust counseling service unit, and we really uh, teach people everyone at some point in their life needs counseling. And at these po- times when when you experience such loss, um, it is it is just right to speak to someone about it, whether it's a uh, whether it's clergy, whether it's a professional counselor, uh, whether it's your peers, but we can't just be isolated in our grief. Yeah. So, Commissioner, I mean, you know, um, I've, I've spoken to Sal Casano and I've had this conversation earlier and I've talked with uh, police commissioners uh, over the years about this, that, you know, the police department has a culture. Uh, fire department has a culture. And when you think about mental health, for many, many years in our country and in certain cultural contexts, uh, organizational cultural contexts, there has been a stigma associated with mental health, admitting that you need it, going to a therapist. Has that changed? I think to some degree it has, but it certainly hasn't been wiped out. You know, I I wouldn't say that um, people still feel, uh, some people that uh, I'm never going to admit that I need help mm-hmm. and and we have to get past that and we have to get past it in the, the police department with all day experience and fire departments um, we send our counseling unit all over the country when there's a, a mass event whether it's in Las Vegas or, or Orlando or school shootings and our fire brother and sister firefighters uh, around the country need help our counselors uh have provided that over the years. So we're very proud of that here in New York, that we we have such a robust yeah. system. Reverend Bernard, years ago, I wrote a recommendation for someone, and I said, I see him at services every Sabbath. And the person wrote me back and said, yeah, but who sees him the rest of the week? What does he do the rest of the week? Nice that you mm-hmm. see him once a week. And I can tell you this, uh, I've been with Commissioner Nigro many times during the week, as well as in, in his church. So uh, here is someone who serves... His community uh, serves his faith, uh, serves people who need a department 
uh, so desperately during these difficult times. Commissioner, uh, you are the same person in the sanctuary as you are out in the street. Uh, I know your family. Once again, you have family members. Your dad uh, committed to FDNY. How do you want to be remembered? If, if, if people look back and say, Commissioner Igro, 33rd Commissioner, what do you want them to say and know? Well, I hope people, you know, when I was an active firefighter, you know, what everybody wanted to hear was he was a good firefighter. You know, that that was the ultimate uh, uh, compliment in, in that world. But now as commissioner, uh, I hope people will remember me as someone who cares about the, the members and cares about the people of our city and has been uh, uh, fair and uh, and kind. So um, I hope I've been that over the years. Commissioner, you've had decades of experience in New York City uh, Fire Department. Uh, As you look out into the future, what changes would you like to see in the future of the Fire Department here in New York? Well, I'd have to say that uh, the people that I admire people going back in history that have done so much to make the fire department what it is in the days of pre-computer and, uh, and pencil and paper and develop this great system that we have. But I, I think we need to keep growing uh, technologically, and I think we have to have more input in uh, uh, in the laws and regulations, uh, as you see, you'll see some Hmm. Talk about how uh, how things need to change, um, and better fire safety education. More more of an emphasis on educating the public on these things. People recently said to me, "Educated people, I live in a high rise building. What should I do if there's a fire? Do I stay in my apartment or do I run for the stairs?" And I I think you know maybe we're not doing a a, a good enough job educating the public. So. Hopefully, we'll put more emphasis on that in in our great city. Excellent. Commissioner, we've been blessed to have you uh, years, and you're not disappearing. You're going to remain, you know, uh, on the scene, so to speak, uh, and just continue to stay safe, stay strong, and be an inspiration to people who look up to you because of the leadership you've provided. Uh, We all need role models in life. Uh, You know, we can talk about it, but people need to see the role model, and uh, they have seen you. And uh, they have uh, followed your lead. So thank you for all that you've done. We'll continue to do. And uh, let's uh, continue a relationship with one another. Absolutely. And there's no X, you know. He's going to be called commissioner for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to be together at the Cardinal's residence, uh, Ah. Mm -hmm. commissioner, uh, because we felt it was important to say thank you. Our parents taught us at an early age. Thank you are two very important words. So we want to say thank you to you. Uh, Commissioner Dermot Shea will be there uh, just to let you know that we are grateful for uh, all that you've done over the years. Yeah. I certainly look forward to that. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for being on the program. Be and well. we'll be back with more of The, the Red and the Rabbi right here on 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Tasnick. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard, and uh, we've got an incredible guest with us uh, this morning. Another guest, uh, you know, one of two guests, uh, Bishop Victor A. Brown. And Rabbi, he is the suffragan bishop for the Worldwide Fellowship of Independent Christian Churches and presently holds the title of International Bishop and Liaison to the United Nations. I've got to ask him what suffragan is, mm. but he also serves as the pastor of Mount Sinai uh, United Christian Church in uh, the Brighton-Tompkinsville section of Staten Island. He's worked with the police department in uh, a uh, capacity that allows him to be escorted. I've never, I've never gotten an escort, uh, Rabbi, no matter where I've gone. But Victor Brown uh, is Oh, that's man. not true. I've seen you with a few police escorts over the years. Uh, come on. Yeah. Uh, escorting you out. Escorting you out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> But he's also adjunct professor of preaching at the New York Theological Seminary as part of his resume. Got his Master of Divinity. Just, but you know what? He's an incredible human mm-hmm. being. Yep. Uh, sits on the uh, Commission of Religious Leaders with you and I and, and, and the Cardinal. And uh, we work together and develop a, an incredible relationship over time. Bishop Brown, thank you for being on the Rev and the Rabbi this morning. 
I've got to take you as my PR person everywhere I go. You do such an excellent <laughs> job at, at, at making more of me than who I am. But uh, it's always a joy to be with two of my favorite people, uh, especially uh, on such a notable day. Uh, Dr. King is a, is a tremendous hero of mine. And uh, I had a chance to uh, know Dr. King vicariously through his chief of staff, Dr. Y.T. Walker who mm. took me under his wing while I was a student at New York Theological Seminary. Uh, as a matter of fact, at that time, uh, he was very instrumental with uh, organizing the uh, National Action Network, who uh, Alfred Charlton is the founder, uh, and I am one of the original board members of NAN, and it's incredible uh, the, the impact that it is now having on a national level. Mm. So... One of the things I remember about you so vividly, and I've mentioned it to so many, is your ability to bring diverse elements of a community together. I will never forget, uh, none of us who were there will forget, uh, what you did in convening a special gathering, the Garner family, members of the police department, uh, members of the interfaith community, and saying that, you know, we are many and we are one simultaneously. Talk about the work yeah. over the years and the need. I mean, I, I just see, you know, we were talking uh, t- today uh, about the horrific fire in the Bronx. And one of the thoughts that came to my mind is we have such disunity uh, in our country. And yet we saw during this crisis in the Bronx such unity in a community. Uh, and yes. I think that's always been your your aspiration. How do we bring unity into the community, even when things around us uh, are conflicting with one another. Yeah, it was it was amazing to see how, how people from all walks of life came together around that tragedy in, in the Bronx. Uh, again, going back to, to, to the spirit and legacy of, of Dr. King, uh, Dr. King, in my assessment, was, was the consummate diplomat and always sought ways to uh, bring the nation's attention to to the atrocities of our time, and he really sought to do that by by speaking to to the the, the innate human capacity within all of us to be empathetic, and and to and to see the the, the sufferings of, of other people, and so to to that end, uh, I am a great admirer of his, and incidentally, when the Eric Gardner situation took place. Uh, I was, in essence, trying to channel the spirit of Dr. King. What would Dr. King do in, in such a way? Uh, New York City has uh, has a longstanding history of there being friction between the police uh, and the African-American community. And so I can tell you with that situation that happened on Staten Island, uh, there was not one act of violence that took place. And that was because... Uh, I and some other uh, leaders worked very closely with the NYPD and encouraged them to be very, very sensitive to the pain, to the outrage, and to the anger that was coming out of that community and not to respond to it in a way that would fuel the anger, but to to try to employ means of, of of, of diffusing and again of being empathetic to uh, the pain that the Gardner family was feeling as well as uh, the community. And so I was very instrumental in, in dialoguing with all of the precincts, but in particular the 120 precinct, because that was the precinct district within which the uh, unfortunate circumstance happened. Bishop, let's talk about the, the social conditions that we are facing today. Dr. King made race a moral issue appealing to the conscience of a nation. Has our national conscience become desensitized by the polarization that we're seeing and creating a deficiency of empathy? Yes, it it, it certainly has been. I think you hit the nail uh, on the head. And if Dr. King were alive today, he would be uh, greatly disappointed. He would be greatly disappointed at, at what he's seeing by way of the national discourse. Uh, I think back to, uh, say, say for instance, the, the Voters' Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act that, that had taken place. 
that really came forth, even though Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, with his, uh, again, partnership with civil rights leaders, uh, made the appeal to, to both uh, the, the Senate and the House, uh, there was a bipartisan buy-in to it. What we're seeing now, because right now voter rights, uh, which is basic to democracy, is under attack. And it seems as if things are so polarized and so tribal that uh, I think we are in greater trouble now even than we were then because we can't seem to get bipartisan buy-in to do uh, what is right. Yeah. And, and, and so I think I think we have reason to to really harbor uh, trepidation. We, we are at a we're in a very very bad place in terms of this nation, in terms of its race relations, uh, and there is definitely a threat to our democracy. Yeah, the word compromise, bipartisan, uh, seem to have escaped our vocabulary. We don't uh, uh, have those yeah. uh, discussions anymore. Let me ask you this. Uh, I'm listening to the two of you speak, and I recall a meeting that uh, Reverend Bernard, you convened, Bishop Brown was there, as well as a few other uh, members of the, the faith community, talking about anti-Semitism. There, were, there was a rash of anti-Semitic attacks in New York City. And I think back to King, who spoke out, obviously, on, on behalf of the civil rights of, of his community, but he spoke about the rights of all people uh, to, to live with dignity and decency. Uh, he gave... Talk. He spoke in synagogues, talking uh, about the sin of anti-Semitism. He spoke on behalf of Israel when Israel was under attack. Soviet Jews. Uh, so he was a person of faith who cared about people, all people of faith, or some people of no faith. But he saw us all belonging to the human family. That's that's a message we need to strengthen out there, so we don't all operate in our separate silos. Am I right? I, I agree with that, and, and I think. To uh, pigeonhole or to put Dr. King in the category of just being a civil rights activist is to grossly uh, undermine uh, the enormity of, of who he was and also of his message. For him, the message was not about black or white. It was about wrong and right. And, and so that is uh, more of a, of a ubiquitous message and not just relegated to, to one person. Uh, because at the end of the day, when we think about it, the only race that really matters is the human race, of which we are all a part of. And uh, I, I don't know exactly how we get at it. I think we, have, we are really adrift when it comes to uh, appreciate, appreciating the fact that there is the best and the worst of us and the worst and the best of us and that there is more that can serve as a unifying element than there is to divide us as a nation. You know, the, the relationship between uh, the Jewish community and the African-American community uh, goes back over 150 years. Mm -hmm. People don't know about Jewish abolitionists in Georgia, in, in, in the Deep South, who were trying their best to... Uh, push for a change in our nation with regard to the enslavement of African Americans. Uh, Rabbi, I'm sure yeah. you're you're aware of yeah, that. Yeah, the NAACP yeah. was formed by Jews. Uh, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. Jewish leadership. And I was reading about Max Fisher, who was a major political figure, uh, and all he did for Rosa Parks. I mean, she the housing in which she lived, I think, it was in Detroit, was horrific. Uh, mm -hmm. And he said, "No, we're moving you out of here. You cannot stay here." And he helped relocate her. And, you know. Uh, the closeness and commitment of the two communities to each other uh, was was something very special. It it got, you know, it fell apart for a while. Uh, but I, I think now we've reached a place where we're beginning to to find common areas of uh, uh, strength where we need to be there with one another. Yeah, it was attacked during Dr. King's days, uh, Rabbi. You know that yeah. um, the coalition between Dr. King and the Jewish community was attacked, mm -hmm. and I, I yeah. think people sought to undermine the strength that they saw that coalition represented to change things in American society. And I think that people today want to interrupt that uh, same thing again, but it's changing. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, one of one of the uh, lessons I learned from Dr. Wyatt T. Walker about the modus operandi of Dr. King is that the visible protest we saw, the marches, were really the measures of last resort. Dr. King understood very well that in order to advance change, because African-Americans represented a minority, he was going to need major buy-in from the Jewish community, from the white community. And mm-hmm. so his appeal was to the consciousness of these people to try to get all of us to, to understand that any dilemma in our community really represented a dilemma for the nation. And, and so it was important that, that we see the good that would come up out of a unified effort to bring about a change that would benefit the entire country and would bring a sense of, of equity and justice, which as citizens in this country, the, uh, the Constitution uh, is, is supposed to afford us that. You know, we all know that hatred is not this neatly confined, compartmentalized uh, component of life, that the, the, the hatred... Uh, metastasizes and you know the, right you scratch the skin of a anti-semite you'll find a racist and vice versa uh so we need one another to stand for one another and i i must say that i've been very encouraged over the years by the two of you and others who have said we will not allow uh our uh, togetherness to be ripped apart by by hate mongers we're going to be there for one another if there's an attack on a synagogue i know you're going to be there attack on a church we're going to be there um, that's the spirit we need. We can't be defined by people who seek to divide us. Uh, I don't know if we can ever change them, but they're certainly not going to change us. I think what you said, Rabbi, is so important. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Bishop, but just I think about, uh, Bishop, and you're familiar with this, I'm sure, the book of James that speaks of the wealthy exploiting uh, the poor in withholding fair wages and the thought that uh, they're going to be safe in their enclaves. And the book right. of James expresses that, no, it's going to come back to bite them. So there is a metastasis yeah. that takes place. And people who exploit and oppress are not safe uh, from where they think they may be safe from the realities that it's going to spread and affect everyone. Everyone gets affected by it. Yes, that is that is true. Um, I was thinking back to the service that you made mention of, Rabbi, where we brought members of the community, where we brought the Garner family, and we brought the police department to the same service. Yep. And if you remember, at the end of the service, there was a unity candle lighting mm-hmm. that took mm-hmm. place between uh, Gwen, uh, uh, Gwen Carr and uh, Chief Delatory at that time, who served as the girl uh, commander. And uh, to his credit, uh, Delatory took a great risk because, unfortunately, when it comes to police-community relationships, it's, it's almost like an, an us-against-them kind of mentality when I've always advocated that there is no institution, whether it's the church or the, the police department, that is above and beyond reproach. And so we can be critical of the police department without being anti-police, just like we can be critical of the church without, you know, being anti-church. Mm. Uh, and so it was a very tenuous climate, but there was such a power, I think, generated by just that moment, I believe it served as, as a uh, event of empowerment to see Gwen Carr and to see Chief Delatory light that candle to say, you know what, we're really one about this. We're really one in this because it's about a human life that was taken, but it was also about how do we take this tragedy and build upon it so we can make for a better partnership and a better community. Yeah. So it, it was a major, major event. That's why you're such a, in a pivotal position there, being chaplain for NYPD, being a member of the African-American community, that you, you say, I can have my, my feet in both camps and make it work. 
uh, that we are. It's not us against them. It's it's all of us together making it better. Uh, so you know, I I, res- I respect you for that. What I want to ask you, yeah. What I want to ask you is, I've often heard it said that young people uh, in the African American community look at King not the same way as the elders. Is that so? Do they have a different view of King, or uh, they just, they seem as a, a person of the past, but not necessarily of the present? Talk, talk to that. I think that's sort of a, a, a natural progression, unfortunately, because with each succeeding generation removed from King, it's been my observation there is less and less energy and effort being made to not just preserve our history, but to learn our history. So there are many youth who don't have a clue other than the fact that, you know, Martin King was a civil rights leader uh, and it's a day off from school for, you know, those who are in school. It's a national holiday, you know. But if you ask some of these millennials, you know, who was Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, uh, who was A. Philip Randolph, or, you know, some some of the stalwarts of the struggle, many of them will not know because there, there has not been that major effort to keep and preserve that that history, and and one of the, the uh, aspects of uh, the Jewish faith that I so applaud is with intentionality. Uh, there there is the teaching of your history, and there's the um, expectation that uh, youth will 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 know from whence you you come. And I'm I'm a proponent of the fact that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And if you don't know where you've come from, then how can you know where you're going? Yeah. Well, you know, Bishop, that's so important what you just said, uh, especially, you know, that we take as a Judeo-Christian faith from our Jewish roots. And that is the the command to rehearse these things in the ears of the people, teach them to your children, uh, bind them to your hearts, to your doorposts, uh, Rabbi, language that you're familiar with, yeah. and, 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 and we don't do that. Dr. King himself said, not only do we need to inform our oppressors, but we must also educate ourselves uh, as a yes. people so that we can pass this on from one generation to another. So very, very important point that you'd made. Yeah, I think of that famous artistic depiction, Moses leading the people uh, out of Egypt, and he's carrying a box. And the question is, what was in the box? And the remains of Joseph, the remains of Jacob, uh, because, you know, they didn't want to be left behind. And I think we, in our own way, have to carry the boxes with us. We have to carry the remains of those who preceded us and make sure that their message is continuously heard uh, so people don't forget and know the message of yesterday resonates uh, with us today. What I want to talk to you about, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, there are people who easily dichotomize as you said, us against them, oppressor mm-hmm. versus oppressed. You know, I think we've made progress in our society. What does somebody say? We're not where we want to be. We're not where we're going to be. But thank God we're not where we used to be. And there is sometimes a lack of recognition uh, of the progress we have made because some people want to keep us, you know, almost transfixed in, in a certain position. So uh, we don't move forward. You know, we're still in this bad place. And I don't think that is fair. Uh, we've made a lot of progress. That doesn't mean that we, you know, that we're a finished product. But we we shouldn't ignore what we have done uh, in the name of uh, civil rights. I, 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 you know, I agree. That, I'm I'm sorry, Doc. No, no, go ahead. I because he just sparked something in my thinking. But go ahead, uh, uh, Bishop. Please. I I would agree that we have made uh, some great strides in terms of having put an end to segregation and and uh, institutions likened to that. But I think we are at a place on a national level that we have not been that is frightening at best. Mm -hmm. When we talk about the democracy I believe that the politics of the last five years has 
demonstrated just how fragile democracy is. And one of the hallmark tenets of democracy is the ability to vote. And now we're seeing that across this nation, there are fractions moving with great intentionality to undermine the ability of certain sects of our country to be able to vote. Because absent and apart from a federal law that governs voter rights left to the individual states, I believe that it's going to to put this country in a place where it is going to uh, threaten the very fabric of democracy in a way we have not been threatened in many, many, many years. Bishop, there are those who would respond to that and say, well, we're trying to do just that, preserve the integrity of the voting process. Therefore, we want to see things in place to make sure that every vote counts, but also that every vote is legitimate. How do you respond to that? I have trepidation with that. I think that's a that's a nice uh, public. Um, how should I say? I, I, I that sounds nice is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But how do we then justify um, state legislators who are trying to put laws in place that say we are the ones who will validate? the outcome of an election. And so, in other words, if we if we don't like the outcome, it is within our parameter to, to then nullify the results even after the people have spoken. Mm-hmm. See, I think so, this is, yeah, I think this is where... power corrupt, absolutely. Yeah, I think this is where Bishop Brown, Reverend... See, the discourse unfortunately, doesn't take place as it should. If we could get parties in the room, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that there are many people who want to change voting procedures and are not doing it because, you know, they're racist. They're not doing it because they don't want people voting. They just, as you said, they, they have a different view of the integrity of the vote. But you need people talking to each other to find a place where we can preserve that integrity uh, and make sure that people take voting seriously uh, and honestly. Uh, you know, but we're not going to get there as long as we retreat to our separate enclaves and don't have that conversation and label the other. You know, if we keep mm-hmm. with the name calling, we're not going to get anywhere. Uh, yeah. But, but I, what, what precipitated, though, my question, though, is what precipitated all of a sudden these states now having to make all of these changes to voting procedures and voting rights yeah. when... Chris Krebs, who is a Republican and who was the director of cybersecurity, said that this was the safest election that has ever taken place in history. Yeah, Yeah, the allegations. It's all based on allegations, but not proof. uh, Correct. And and again, there there were 60 cases launched and presided over by, and some of those judges were appointed by the past administration. Mm-hmm. And none of the cases demonstrated any level of veracity that there was a voter fraud mm-hmm. or anything that was improper in terms of, of the process. So why the urgency? Why the need? What is giving rise? To, to doing that, it gives it gives one the impression that there is a nefarious rationale afoot that has an agenda other than that of vote and making things and or convenient. All the more reason for reasonable people to come together. We've come to the end of the segment, uh, Bishop and Reverend. I just want to say this: there's a great quotation attributed to Martin Luther King that you know we can live with. Uh, finite disappointment but we cannot live without infinite hope and uh, mm. in my relationship with two of you and so many other great leaders uh, there is hope for the future uh, because we see all that you're doing in the present and I know as a Jew uh, that when my people are under attack you're standing with us when your people are under attack we're standing with you 
Um, yes. And we, we're going to continue uh, to fight that battle against those who try to diminish uh, all that's been accomplished. Uh, they're not going to get away with it. There's much more good than there is evil, and uh, you know, we will triumph uh, in that fight. So thank you, uh, Bishop Victor Brown, NYPD Chaplain Victor Brown. Thank you for all uh, uh, of your service to all communities, and let's continue to work together. So, so Bishop, before we go, yes. what is a suffragan sure. bishop? <laughs> suffragan bishop is is just a designation that uh, that I have as second in command to the archbishop. Uh, I know I know what a suffering rabbi is. I don't know about a <laughs> suffering bishop. But I, 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 you know what? And we're never second in command. We don't we don't accept that he's everyone is first in command in my community. There is no second in command. Uh, thank it, you. It, it just means more work, and, and the <laughs> the only reward for good work is more work. Yeah, and someone to blame when it doesn't go well. We always need a second in command. Yeah, Bishop Brown is. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, and I appreciate our personal relationship also. But good to have you on the program. Thank you for your contribution to a a great discussion and the kind of discussion that we should have more of, Rabbi. Yeah, Yeah. no, again, there are good people that need to talk to one another, even when they have different points of view. We can't just surround ourselves with people who agree all the time. Uh, we We need to get to a place where we've created space where there's room for disagreement uh, without denigration. Yeah, that, that's a goal. I agree. All right. Thank All right. you so much. Bishop Victor Brown, stay tuned. We'll be back with more of The Rev and the Rabbi right here on 77 WABC. And by the way, AR, before we go, yeah. I want yeah. people to know that you have been designated as the Grand Marshal at WABC. For Martin Luther King Day. Now I don't know wait, what that wait. entitles you to do. Is, is that a parade? Do I? I don't. Do I, you know, do I, I get free coffee. I grew what, up. I grew up with Gunsmoke. I only know from Marshall Dillon. I don't know the Grand Marshal <laughs> what that is, but it sounds really honorific. It sounds like you're be given a certain prestige that none of us has. So whatever uh, is going to happen uh, tomorrow, uh, just know you're in charge. You're the I, Grand I, I, Marshal. I feel I feel honored. I, I hope. <laughs> Thank you, Rabbi. All right. Thank you for joining us today and every Sunday right here on WABC with the Rev and the Rabbi. We'll see you next time. God bless.